Blog Talk Radio. Hey, good afternoon, everybody. This is Kim with Black Free Thinkers. We are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself. Again, we are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself. And this is Kim. And it has been a lot going on. Um, it's, it's been a couple of weeks since I've done a show, actually. I think it's been about three weeks since I've done a show. Um, life, life happens. And sometimes things just happen and you just have to go with it. Anyway, today's show, we're going to hit on a number of different topics. Again, I just kind of brush around on some of these topics. And I encourage you guys to go out and do the research on your own to find out what's happening, what's going on, how this affects you, what type of impact this has on you, whether it's directly or indirectly. So, again, my wish is that you take the information that I present and I give to you and you look it up. As they say, trust but verify. I want you to research the things that I'm saying to you because there are times when I could be wrong. I am wrong sometimes, and sometimes I'll misspeak, I'll come back and correct it, and we'll go from there. So today on today's show, we're going to talk about we don't have the privilege to. And I put an ellipse behind that. You know, you can put an underline under it. You can fill in the blank, however you want to call that. But we don't have the privilege to do a lot of things. I mean, we don't even have the privilege to die with dignity in this freaking country sometimes. I mean, it's just it's unreal. So anyway, I was asking you all to join us today as we go over a number of issues that have taken place recently. And I gave some bullet points. Um, one, Mark Lamont Hill, Tamika Mallory, white folks, Black Public Figures and White Expectations and Demands, Centoya Brown, Jeffrey Epstein, Reparations, George H.W. Bush, 45, Waspy Season, and much more. Now, I'm going to go over these things, but not in any particular order. And for those of you that have been listening to this show, I have these things listed, but I will talk about other things and sometimes try to bring it all in to make some of this connect so that you can see where I'm coming from. And you may or may not agree with it, and that's fine. You know, I'm just telling you what's coming, you know, how I'm, the context that I'm reading this in and, and how I'm trying to make sense of these particular topics and these issues and what's happening. So I gave you all of that, and like I said, it's in no specific particular order. And I'm also going to be, you know, talking and, and um you know, talking about and hinting upon other things as well. So, you know, just work with me, work with what I'm talking about, and also I don't have a lot of notes. I didn't take that many notes this week, and there are a number of things that I actually wanted to talk about, but because I didn't really have enough time to go back and go through my um, bookmarks and some of the other notes that I took, you know, I'm going to have to come back to some of those issues, okay? So let's see here. What is up first? It's kind of hard to choose, right? But um, what I didn't have on the list was Tyler Perry. I guess he paid off close to a half million dollars worth of railways for people for Christmas. Okay. You know, one thing I want to remind people is, again, capitalism, whether it's in white face or black face, will not save us. 
And I know some of you are like, well, why is she being Debbie Downer from the gate? And why is she putting down Tyler Perry? I didn't put down Tyler Perry. I didn't do that. All I'm saying to you is to look beyond that. Black capitalism is the same thing as white capitalism. It's just in blackface. It's still not going to work. And that leads to a whole different type of conversation that I don't really want to get into right now. But you know what? It, it'll, it'll come back up in this conversation today on this show in whatever respect that it does. Um, Kevin Hart and his homophobic rants. And it's really interesting because you have D.L. Hughley out here making these comments, and D.L. is just as problematic as Kevin Hart is. But what's interesting is the people that are critiquing Kevin Hart, his response is telling them to not be so negative, stop being negative, and get from around here with all that negativity. And I just find that interesting because that's the argument you hear from a lot of people. When you're critiquing something that they said or did, they automatically want to cast you as being negative, you know, or being pessimistic or whatever word of choice happens to be at that time. But what Kevin Hart said was problematic then. It's problematic now. Um, in so many ways, there's so many words he apologized, and I believe that, you know, his representatives issued an apology, I guess, in his name or what have you. It's just a bunch of fuckery. And you have someone out here, um, I think Lena Waithe, who's saying that Donald Glover should um, basically replace Kevin Hart. Well, he's made some very problematic statements, too. So it's just it's going to be across the board. Don't be surprised. People will go and dig all that old shit up. And the thing is, is that have these people grown since they made those comments? You know, you have to be open to learning, open to growing, open to unlearning and deprogramming yourself of some of these biases and these xenophobic ideas and ideologies. So, you know, it's a lot more behind all of that, but I just wanted to bring that up real quick and, um, you know, just sitting there and watching it and just shaking my head at the whole thing. Um, Something else that was in the news most recently is Denmark. And, you know, over in Europe, all over Europe, they're having issues with their so-called refugees or the so-called immigrants or migrants. It just depends on who you're talking to and what they call the people, right? But at the end of the day, it's too many black and brown people coming to their white European countries, you know, and so, you know, the population is growing too fast, and it's about control. So anyway, Denmark, what they're doing with their so-called refugees is they're trying to put them on this island, and the name of the island is Lindum, L-I-N-D-H-O-L-M, Lindum Island. And for that specific island, it was called the Sick Animal Island. So what they were doing, basically, they were studying contagious animal diseases. And it was also being used as a crematorium for dead pigs and cows. But they want to take about 100 of these refugees, put them on the island, um, you know, have limited ferry service, and the people that they send over there to keep an eye on these folks, basically guard them, will have to sleep over there. So basically they're turning this island into a prison. And so I want you guys to go out 
and to look at what's happening all over Europe, but specifically Western Europe, and see how they're dealing with their issues with the immigrants and the refugees that are coming to their countries and the racism behind all of that. It's important that you guys pay attention because the same thing is happening here. They're using the same rhetoric. As a matter of fact, you know, um, 45 has picked up a lot of the political ideas and rhetoric coming out of Western Europe in regards to politics, in regards to economics, in regards to, you know, their quote-unquote undesirables and, you know, their immigrant problems and, you know, their black problems and race problems and sexism problems. You know, just pay attention. And also, have you all been watching what's happening with the yellow vest over in Paris? Now, it's not just Paris. You're having these protests all around the world. And, yeah, this is something I forgot to put on my list about Donald Trump wanting to create his own World Wide Web and why that's problematic because they want to limit the type of information that you have access to. And I know some of you are like, well, net neutrality. Yes, all of that goes hand in hand. All I'm trying to do is pull it back to the front for you all to think about this and to think about what's happening and to think about why they're trying to limit the amount of information that you digest, that you read, that you understand, why they want to limit your communication with people that are outside of this country, why they want to limit your you know, communication and your, your understanding of the politics you know, that that basically fuel this bullshit thing we call life, right? What happens? Why that happened? Who benefited from that? The propaganda that the, the media espouses in, in, you know, details in an endless loop to have you believing one thing when it's actually something totally different, but it's a matter of perspective. And I'm going to get into that a little bit later when I talk about um, the New York Times article that basically was, you know, praising wasps, right? And, you know, somewhere in that conversation that I'm going to have, I'm going to talk about, you know, um, just perspective. I'm going to talk about white supremacy, um, a little bit about imperialism and how all of this ties into what I just finished talking about. And I know you're like, what the hell, Kim? It'll make sense. We'll get there. We'll get there. But I need you guys just, like I said, pay attention to what's happening over in Western Europe. And, you know, I've been saying that for years. This show has been on the air since 2011, you know, and we've been pretty consistent you know, I'm going to talk about Jeffrey Epstein a little bit later, and I know for a fact that Raina and I spoke specifically about him during the primary season when Donald Trump was, you know, running in the primary, and we brought up Jeffrey Epstein and why he was problematic and his ties to Bill Clinton and, and Donald Trump and a number of others. So I'm going to hit upon that again today, but I'm going to hit upon that because of what's happening with Centoya Brown. And for you all to understand the difference in what's happening between those two cases and privilege and white supremacy and how all of that plays a part in there. 
But, you know, before I get to all of that, like I said, you know, I'm kind of just somewhat spitballing off the top of my head. So, you know, just bear with me, you know, we'll get to it. But um, let me go ahead and get this shit out the way right here. Let me talk about um, 45, right? So you all have been paying attention to what's going on with Robert Mueller and what's happening with Flynn and Cohen and, and all of that. So the scuttlebutt is, you know, they may be indicting Pence as well, the vice president, Pence. And so, you know, one of the running jokes is if they indict Pence and convict him and indict and convict Trump, then Pelosi will be the president. You know, some people find that funny. I find that scary, you know, and not because I have a problem with Nancy Pelosi, as I stated on the last show. You know, if she's, you know, basically assuaging the fears of 45 by telling him that they're not going to discuss impeachment and, and, you know, just basically trying to quell his fears and trying to assure or reassure him that she is on his side, then, of course, I find her problematic. And I feel that she should be mentoring people to take her place. But I would say that even if that wasn't the case, because she's getting a little older up there. Why can't she enjoy her time, you know, and retire and go down to Shady Acres like everybody else? But, um, you know, and the same thing with Chuck Schumer. You know, he needs to go on down there to, you know, Golden Farms and smoke his cigars or whatever the hell he does. I I feel that, you know, a lot of these people need to retire. You know my thing. I feel we should vote them all out and we should take away a lot of the incentives that they have. They should not have the Cadillac Medicare plan or, yeah, basically it's Medicare. But, you know, the Cadillac Medicare plan that they won't give us, you know, if you serve one term, you get a percentage of your salary for the rest of your life. Who does that? So, I mean, these are things that, you know, we need to actually start thinking about. And and some changes need to be made, and they need to be made immediately. But, you know, it's been really interesting with this Mueller case here, um, you know, with Cohen not 100% fully cooperating because he doesn't want to admit to any crimes that, you know, he has uh, committed. And we all know there's a bunch of those. And, you know, and the thing with Flynn, you know, basically telling on every damn body, and 45 has yet to criticize Flynn in public. He won't do it. You need to be asking yourself why. And um, Manafort, him and that fuckery right there. So, you know, they believe that Manafort is sitting on some explosive information that he won't hand over. And if he was really playing secret agent, man, double spy there and feeding the information to, you know, 45's lawyers, then, you know, it's going to be really interesting to see the fallout from all of that. It's going to be really, and, and then also did Mueller figure that that is what Manafort was doing? So, you know, coming in there like a Trojan horse, right? So it's going to be interesting watching how all of this works out, how it falls in place. But as I've stated before, I resent the fact that every day I wake up, I'm forced to participate in this damn reality show. You know, it's not fair. But what it's doing is it's exposing all of this 
for what it really is and on so many levels. And so what's interesting about all of this, because, you know, I've been thinking and thinking and thinking about it. I watched a documentary last night again, and I would, you know, encourage you guys to go and watch it. It's called The Panama Papers. Now, you all may or may not remember when this was released, and it was a big old controversy because it was talking about the tax havens and the wealthy people and even some people that aren't necessarily in the 1% or 2%, you know, that were basically, uh, you know, sheltering their money in, in these particular tax havens. And, and the controversy, I mean, the prime minister of Iceland had to resign. Dave Cameron of England, you know, had to make some explanations and, you know, and he didn't run for re-election. And, you know, everything that's happening behind that and, you know, go back and watch it and go back and read the reporting because that was explosive. But you go back and read it so you can get a better understanding because if you go back and you read the Panama Papers, you watch the documentary. Now, you know, I want you to watch the documentary and read, you know, quite a few of the articles and PDFs that are out there about that. It's important that you do both. And the reason why I'm saying that is because it will help you to understand what's happening with these tax breaks that 45 and Republicans pushed. The significance of those tax breaks and how it impacts the rich, how it impacts our country, but not only that, it'll help you to better understand that, you know, while we point the finger at Switzerland and Panama and all these other places of being tax havens, what they've been able to do, what, what the United States government and their officials, these politicians have been able to do, is basically blind the American public to the absolute fact that we are the world's biggest tax haven and how they pretty much have strong-armed Panama and these other countries um, into basically being more transparent while they are refusing to do so. So the banks and, you know, they, they have these lobbyists that go up there, and they are refusing to be more transparent. You know, if you want to incorporate a business in this country, you know, Delaware and Nevada are two states that you can incorporate, and you can kind of hide some of your bullshit. You can hide your identity make it harder for people to trace you, and you can set up these tax havens. You can set up these incorporations, these businesses, and this is how you get all of the money laundering because there's a lot of money laundering happening in this country and as well as what happened with the Panama Papers. You go, you'll see how, how it's put together and how it's done. And, you know, we've talked about this before, and people get upset with me, but I've talked about some of your churches, some of your pastors, in, in, in how they launder money. And it happens a lot more often than you realize. Look at some of the businesses in your neighborhoods. You know that chicken and fish place that you rarely see anyone go into? Or that little grocery store that's selling, you know, rotten, you know, damn near rotten oranges and apples, none of the produce or any of the food? is good, the, the, the meat smells, all of that, how are those businesses open and have been open for decades and no one in the neighborhood really goes in there to buy anything? 
You need to think about that. How does that work? And then think about some of the people that are running those businesses. That's all I'm saying. And it even goes beyond that. Um, I don't have the article in front of me, but I'm sure you can look it up. But there was an entire police department somewhere in Pennsylvania where all the police officers were charged with money laundering. They were, I mean, it's ridiculous. It happens, and it happens a lot in this country. I need for you guys to be more alert and to pay attention to what's happening. But most importantly, sometimes you have to pay attention to what's not being said. You understand? <laughs> um, you know, there are a lot of things that we can talk about. Some of the shit is scary. It really is. So go back, watch the documentary, the um, the Panama Papers, and I believe someone has it up on YouTube for free. It's like an hour, 45 minutes. But if not, you can probably watch it on Epics or in a couple of other places. I just have all the damn channels, so I was able to watch it. And Epics is free, like, for a week now. So, you know, try to go out and see it as quickly as you can. But um, pay attention. And even when you go back and you read about the Panama Papers, you'll see that a lot of people in the U.S. or the U.S. in general was spared. There's a reason for that. And that reason is because we are the biggest tax haven. You know, that's a little piece of information that they don't want the general American public to pay attention to, that we launder a lot of money and we are a big, big tax haven. And speaking of laundering money, tax havens and politicians, George H.W. Bush died. So it's been really interesting watching people waxing poetically about him and and his tenure as president of the United States you have some people that refer to his time as the head of the CIA and all of those things. And it's a lot about H.W. that, you know, they that most people, most media outlets, they won't touch. You know, think about it. Remember when he was running and he ran the Willie Horton ad? Think about his role with Ronald Reagan and Oliver North and the Iran-Contra, just a number of things. But, you know, what's interesting is not only just H.W., but the entire Bush family. Now, if you go back and you do a little research on their dad, Prescott Bush, he was into a lot of different things, right, And including he was a director of a bank and, you know, one of seven directors of a financial institution or banking institution, and they happen to have alleged ties to Hitler and the Nazis. You know, and if you go back, I just I need you guys to go back and look up the Bush family history, especially Neil Bush. Neil Bush and the savings and loan and all the money that was just stolen from that damn scheme, again, banking, and and what's interesting is, you know, even with H.W. And, and, you know, George H.W. and George W., 
Um, you go back and you look at a number of the businesses that they had, and businesses were failing left and right all over the place. They're not too much better than Trump in that regards. But see, what a lot of people don't understand with a lot of these businesses, especially with these tech, technology businesses, um, these businesses were not designed and created to make money. They hemorrhage money on purpose. And also, you know, I'm talking about money laundering and these tax havens. You need to go back and do some reading and realize how Google and Apple benefit from that, which means their shareholders benefit from that, which means their customers, you and I, we benefit from that in our own way. You know, but I still think that that's blaming the victim because we sure as hell didn't tell them to do these things. You know, and just go back and look at, you know, the Bush family connection to the Bay of Pigs and what happened then. You know, um, since we're talking about, you know, Nazis and Hitler, I want you to think about Henry Ford. Ask, you know, most Jewish people will not buy a Ford car. Ever wonder why? Because Ford's affiliation with the Nazis, with Hitler, the Third Reich, and I'll look this up. I couldn't make this shit up if I wanted to. And that's why I say trust but verify. Look it up. Look it up. You know, and you'll find all kind of articles out there talking about these things. And I'm talking about from notable, reputable um, sources. So, you know, it's a lot. That family has been in a lot of shit, and they've helped to finance a whole bunch of stuff, right? Um, yeah, just, you know, I, I just, I couldn't understand, you know, you have these so-called progressive liberal whites out here that are saying, you know, we must change, you know, and, and they rail against certain aspects of capitalism and certain aspects of, you know, racism and sexism and all of that. And there's some of the same ones that said alongside of Oprah that we just have to wait until these old white men die. And then these are the same people talking about, oh, well, Bush was an outstanding, you know, statesman and just a wonderful person. He baked us cookies. <coughs> right? So you're waiting for the racist old white folks to die. And when they die, you talk about how wonderful they are. So I just want you guys Huh. To go and do your research, you know, research George H.W. and Reagan and Iran-Contra, how all of that went down. And, and also during that time when there was an influx of drugs, specifically crack in black and brown communities. And I posted an article talking about where, you know, there was no wave of compassion for when people were hooked on crack. But now you have this big old wave of compassion for people hooked on opioids. And, you know, they even have super opioids now. And it's so interesting because, um, you know, on the show notes, I was talking about wasping. 
And I was just looking some information up. Do you know that they have a new drug out called WASP? So what it is is the methamphetamines mixed in with WASP insecticide. Now, I don't know what the fuck that is, and I have not had a chance to look it up to see what them folks look like that's hooked on that shit. But if meth, look at what meth has done to some of them folks. You're going to mix that with some wasp insecticide? Who the hell had the big idea to do that shit? So I kind of just stumbled upon that shit. Look it up. I haven't had a chance to really look it up really good, but I saw enough to scare the hell out of me. Like, who would do that and why? Now, I know some of you are out there. I need you to understand. I'm one of these people. I believe that all drugs should be legalized. What you put in your body, what you do with your body is your business. You know, I just never would have thought to put wasp insecticide and mix it with the meth. I don't know. I don't know. I guess you become inspired and shit. I don't know. I don't know how that works. But, um, you know, go and look up the Bush family. Go and look it up and see how all of this came about and how they made their money and how they keep their money and how all of these folks are tied in together. You know, they may have spats in public, but H&W made it a point to to his family that he wanted 45 to attend his funeral. So let that sink in. He wanted him there. And I think I posted an article. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. Um, It was an article, and we're going to talk about it a little bit later, but it was talking about Michelle Obama and how she coined when they go high. Well, when they go low, we go high. And in that article, you know, she talks about how the Obamas had to be gracious to the Trumps. And we'll get into all of that. But, you know, I said all of that to say this. You know, all of this stuff ties together. And it's important that you understand what's happening and what's happening around you. And and sometimes it benefits you directly or indirectly. But for the most part, it does not benefit you at all. You pay for that. So with all of these tax cuts and with the money laundering and all the, you know, the tax havens and the shelters and all of that, the people who pay for that are the working class people across all shades and ethnicities and poor people across the board. And that's what's happening now. And it always has always been this way. But now, you know, they're 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 talking about, you know, McConnell is talking about cutting Social Security, Medicare and Medicaid. Now, Social Security and Medicare are third rail topics. They know they're going to get burned on that. So just pay attention to that. You know, it it will affect their cost of living raises. You know, they're going to, you know, make some changes, but they're trying to privatize all of these things. With Medicare, they've already started with attempting to make people work to get their Medicare. Now, in some cases, these people are severely disabled, how are they going to work? What are they going to do? And so 
I'm not understanding what they think they're going to achieve with that. But it's not going to be anything positive or productive. And you already see what they're doing with Link or food stamps or what have you, sending people food boxes of shit that's just going to kill them quicker. You know, you cannot live off of juice boxes and hot Cheetos for the rest of your life. It's just not going to work. And so um, (laughs) I don't really want to dwell on that, you know, for a long time, but I really think um, it's important for you guys to understand and to know um, what's happening out here and how, you know, it's affecting you. So, yeah, you know, it's an article out here. Um, It's called Why the Panama Papers Spared America and the U.S. And it's a part in this article that I kind of wanted to read to you guys because I thought it was very important, and I'm looking for it now. But um, in this article, it does talk about Google and Apple and their shareholders and how they benefit from this and just, you know how all of this shit works about these shell companies and how they're set up. And let me see here. Um, Like I said, it's important for you guys to understand how this works. And a lot of this is not, you know, real complicated, not at all. You know, the young man in Georgia (laughs) that just got arrested for bilking people out of $28 million, young black man. And he did it with the help of the uh, revenue, you know, Georgia Revenue Department. It was just fascinating. Oh, and another state in the United States that helped with the tax or the very lax incorporation laws is Wyoming. But um, let me see here. Just go out and read this article, and some of it will make sense to you. But here's why the Panama Papers spared the U.S., and again, this is from Fortune Magazine, and it's from 4-20-2016. And this was written by Jen, and her last name, W-I-E-C-Z-N-E-R. And so, you know, go back and you read that and watch that documentary and do some more reading on the Panama Papers. There are some links in there that will show you and take you back to what happened with the Prime Minister of Iceland and how they basically, you know, caught him off guard and put him on put him on notice, you know, on, on camera live. And he was stumbling all over the place. So it was interesting to watch. And you'll see that in a documentary as well. And so with that, I'm going to go ahead and phase into, you know, that article that they published in the New York Times in which they were talking about, you know, WASP and, and basically missing George W. Bush, and this was written by Ross Dowbat, D-O-U-T-H-A-T, and he wrote that article December 5th, and I put that on my wall. The name of the article is Why We Missed the Wasp, and I put a subsequent article up there afterwards, and this was from The Root, and this was written by Michael Harriet, and the title of this article is Apparently the New York Times Really Misses White Supremacy, and so Basically, with um, Ross Dalbat, when he was talking about missing George W. Bush, 
he was talking about meritocracy, you know, diversity and so-called secular successors and how, you know, they're not, you know, ruling over the people. So they're not the same ruling class that, you know, they've become accustomed to, which basically means, you know, they're used to being ruled over by white men, period. And see, and the thing is, is that it's not just regular white men. We've talked about this. There is a hierarchy to whiteness. And when I tell that to white people, they just look at me like I'm crazy. And I'm like, you're not paying attention. And which is why he specifically used the word wasp, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, right? And this is why I focus primarily on Western Europe when I talk about a lot of these issues, because those are the wasps, right? And <laughs> you're learning whether you want to learn or not. You know, there are reasons why I refer to certain things certain ways. And so basically it used to be a point in time where it was just white male, period. No one else was welcomed into the room or welcomed at the table. They ran everything, and that's just how it was. They were unapologetic about it. They were unashamed, and they were unabashed. And they did well. And white men were able to establish their dominance and their wealth through that. And, of course, they're missing that. And a lot of, you know, a lot of what you're seeing with 45 right now is because of Barack Obama and their resentment of him being elected president of the United States, not once but twice, right? And so, you know, he put it under the premise of George H.W. Bush and in his reign in office and how that was the end of a so-called era, right? Because right after George W. Bush, I mean, I'm sorry, George H.W. Bush, you had Bill Clinton. That's why George H.W. only served one term. Clinton beat him. And, you know, there's a lot of controversy about that, but you can go and read that, you know, on your own as well. But, um <laughs> You know, he was talking about what you're seeing now with the different political parties and factions. Because, see, there are factions even within these parties. You know, you have your different types of Republicans. You have your different types of Democrats. And it's extremely important that you understand the difference. You have some Democrats that were formerly Republicans, but they're on the Democratic side now, but yet they still vote and legislate as Republicans. And many of them would be considered moderate Republicans. Barack Obama was one. You know, they call them blue doll Democrats. And by the way that Barack Obama would, would you know, the way he would vote in, in some of the policies that he put into place, Barack Obama really truly was a Republican. And I know that's hard for some people to hear. It's hard for some of them to digest. But I want you to go and do some reading. And some of you will disagree. And you know what? I'm okay with that too. And we can talk about it. But, again, a lot of the resentment that this guy wrote in his article was due to the fact that Barack Obama was elected president of the United States. And the resentment that came from that. I remember talking to, you know, just a number of people, but my old stylist, hairstylist, 
her and her husband, but primarily her, you know, because she got her word from him. And at first she brought it up. She said, yeah, I hope he wins because all this racism will go away. And I said, really? You think so? And she said, yeah. She was like, well, you know, yeah, I think it all will go away. And so I guess she went home and talked to her husband. So when I came the next week to see her, she was like, okay, all right, I've adjusted my answer. <laughs> In so many words, she said that. Well, she th- she said she thought most of the racism would go away. And I looked at her and I said, you really believe that? And she seemed pretty sure at that time. And she said, yes. And I just shook my head and I said, it's going to get worse. And she was like, no, it can't get worse. Look at where we are now. And the thing is, is that it's it's not necessarily worse per se. It's just more exposed because these things were already happening. It's just that people didn't believe black and brown folks. And it wasn't on the front page and all over social media. See, social media is what blew this stuff out the water. Social media is what helped to share and pass this information along. It used to be black people would get on the phone and everybody would call, have these phone trees, and, and that's how some information would get around. Now you got the Internet and this instant notification, instant, you know, um, you know, instant knowledge or acknowledgement of whatever it happens to be. So anyway, in this particular article written by Michael Harriet. If you scroll down a little bit toward the middle part of the article, I'm going to read this from it. It says, in somehow channeling the subconscious pinings of non-doubt-that white people, because, of course, he doesn't think like that. He just somehow knows. Doubt-that writes eloquently about the bygone era of starched white shirts, wool suits, and spaces where anyone who wasn't white and male was banned from entry. I must admit, this utopian white conda sounds alluring in its dreamlike vanilliness. When doubt that describes a spirit that trained the most privileged children for service, not just success, that sent men like Bush into combat alongside the sons of farmers and mechanics in the same way it sent missionaries and diplomats abroad in the service of their churches in their country. He manages to make colonization and a quest for world domination sound almost aspirational. Even when doubt that reaches a murky conclusion that the nostalgia is, maybe, misguided or misplaced, he fails to call it what it is, white supremacy. Setting aside the squalid Ziploc bag of hippopotamus seeding currently occupying the White House, Thou that never makes a single point that supports his argument that things are actually worse since the reins of America's wagon train was supposedly, we'll get to that later, snatched from the white man's hand. He doesn't argue why things were better when white men were in charge. Instead, he just proclaims through the proxy of his invisible straw man that things were better simply because the establishment was white. The most notable marker for this idiotic but well-written display of white fragility occurs at the beginning of Dalvat's piece and that 
and this is a point that he should make more often. The only difference between Barack Obama and all of the quote-unquote great presidents is his skin color. His administration had fewer scandals than any in recent history. He was as devoted a family man as any other previous commander-in-chief. He was an Ivy Leaguer. He was a legal scholar, and although some may denigrate the title of quote, community organizer, end quote, it symbolizes a dedication to public service. Obama was an uncontroversial, as stable, and as establishment a president as any man in history. Take away his skin color, and Obama was almost unremarkably qualified to be president, but he was black, so dot, 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 you know, okay? So I quoted that piece. Because that's very, very important to understand. Um, And, you know, I've talked about this for a while. Um, A lot of us, white, black, brown, whatever, perpetuate white supremacy in a number of ways and don't realize that's what we're doing. And I stated on the last show, we have all of these, courses, and you can get a degree in studying African-American, African studies, whatever, you know, all of these things, but there are no courses on white supremacy. And I want you to note that, you know, put a little asterisk next to that and think about it. But up here, I, I think it's very important for you to understand when they were talking about sending their children to war sending them to the military, out for service. You know, being in the military has turned into a status symbol, just like being a missionary being sent to these other countries has become, you know, a status symbol. And, you know, being a diplomat, same thing, status symbol. And, you know, what's interesting is, you know, I've been looking at this a number of ways, and again, I guess it's about, you know, perspective, And I see all of that as white supremacy. When I look at the missionaries going across to these other countries, especially to these black and brown countries, you know, the best, you know, good example was, anyway, to these black and brown countries, I don't want to veer too far off. And what they go, what they do over there, and I'm talking about American missionaries, is they go over there and they sell them their Bible, their God, their Jesus, if if that's what they're selling, if they're selling Jesus over there. But most importantly, they're selling them American imperialism and white supremacy. And the same thing with the military. So with the military, they're beating it into you by orders, via orders of these elitist white men that are in power. And the same thing with the diplomats. The diplomats aren't beating you into it. They're just talking you into it. And they talk and they talk and they keep talking and make you believe that it was your idea. So anyway, I'm just trying to show you some connection into all of this. You know, like I told you at the beginning of the show um, that I would do that, but it's actually a really, really good article Um, And I would, you know, encourage you to go and read it. So, again, the title of the article, apparently the New York Times really misses white supremacy. 
It was written by Michael Harriet, and um, you know, it was a pretty good article. So, you know, you, you pick up quite a bit from it. He also wrote an article, I told y'all, Donald Trump can't read, you know, which was interesting. And so, <laughs> and so I'm going to move on, move forward. Um, oh, here's something out of the blue. Apparently, on my last show, I told Mary Michelle Williams to run from old boy Chad Johnson. Well, apparently they broke up, so Michelle got away from that abusive um, situation there. So good for you, Michelle. Not that most of my listeners care anything about entertainment, but it wasn't so much about her being a celebrity or entertainer or anything. It was about the abusive nature of that relationship. And, 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 you know, it didn't matter who he was, you know, he could have been, you know, Creflo. And I would have said the same thing, get away from that. So anyway, uh, let's see here. All right, so I'm going to try to move on from that. And it's a lot that I want to get to. But I want to talk about this Centoya Brown thing. All right. So there is an article you may want to read called Centoya Brown Must Serve 51 Years to Be Eligible for Release, and you can find it over in the root. And this was written by Monique Judge, right? And so she talks about Centoya Brown, talks about how she was put up for adoption at the age of two, um, and, and how she went through the system, and just the girl went through hell. You know, all of the abuse, every type of abuse you can think of, she, she's had to endure. And so around the age of 16, she was sold off as a sex slave to a 43-year-old white dude. And his name was Johnny Mitchell Allen. And, she, you know, he abused her even more. And she killed him. She shot him because she feared that he was going to kill her. Now, one thing I'm going to say I posted this on my wall, and as well as the People of Color Beyond Faith and, and Black Free Thinkers pages. You know, we had some jackass come on my wall and ask if he could buy her. I deleted the comment because I found the comment harmful, and then I blocked his ass. Don't do that. Be a jackass on your own time, on your own wall. You don't do that. That's not funny. Nothing about that was funny. Because what that says to me is if you if you make a comment like that about her, then you feel like you can buy all the rest of us. Fuck you. And we're talking about something serious. Here it is, another black woman being, you know, incarcerated for an extended number of years when she was defending herself and was put in a situation that she should have never been in in the first place. And if she were to have reached out for help, would you have helped her? And you can't blame her for, for things that she didn't know. And she said he always had a gun pointed at her at all times. You know, and she 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 acted out of that fear. And so, you know, 
the Tennessee law has changed since she was charged. Now basically it's saying anyone that's 18 or younger cannot be charged with prostitution. So that's what they charged her with. And that law change came about because of her case, but it's not doing anything to help her. And so, um, you know, I re- I retweeted some information that was out there. Um, prison culture, Miriam, posted Centoya's information where you can write her letters and all of that. And so if you all go to the Black Freethinkers Twitter account, you should be able to see that because I didn't just bookmark it. I did retweet and heart that. So um, you should be able to find that there. And if you can, you know, send her cards, send her letters. I'll be the first one to admit it to tell you guys I'm not good at any of that type of stuff. I used to do stuff like that. And you know what they say. Sometimes people just beat the kindness and, and all of that shit out of you, the politeness and all of that. I stopped all of that. I would do things like that for people. And anyway, we won't get into all of that. But, um, you know, I'm going to try to find some other ways that we can do this. But, guys, if you can, send her some cards, some words of encouragement. Um, you know, we'll try to find out if there's a way we can put money on her books or put money towards her legal fees and help her in that particular situation because, you know, this is outrageous and it's bullshit. And I was extreme, I was angry, you know, about this and what happened and, you know, the laws that have been changed because of that. But it doesn't matter if it went to the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals in Tennessee. She's still in jail. You know, there was even an opinion in the U.S. Supreme Court in 2012 that talked about mandatory life sentences without parole for juvenile offenders to be unconstitutional. You know, and and her case was cited. It's just, you know, her lawsuit, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy. You know, and the reason why I'm, like, even just angry about it, because here's another, you know, black woman, black girl that was failed, failed by everybody, failed by the system, everybody. And she's paying a price for that failure when she should not be, you know, especially when you have people like Jeffrey Epstein running around. I told you I was going to get to this, and here we go. So for those of you, you know, trying to figure out, you know, why I'm talking about this Jeffrey Epstein is because of the plea deal that he had been given and how all of this is tied, to, you know, how he's tied to Donald Trump and and his his then the U.S. attorney, which was our Alexander Acosta. Now he's Donald Trump's or 45's labor secretary. He's the one that gave this particular plea deal to Jeffrey Epstein. Now, there's an article in the New York Times, and the name of the article is Years After Plea Deal in Sex Case, Jeffrey Epstein's Accusers Will Get Their Day in Court. And this was written by Patricia Mazzei, M-A-Z-Z-E-I, and it was written November 29, 2018. And so it talks about Epstein and how he gets 
12 hours of freedom a day. He can go and do whatever he wants and come back. He, you know, he has an office. He has a special wing in the jail, all of that, just all of the privileges afforded, you know, a billionaire white male. How is this possible? And, you know, they were trafficking young girls, you know, nude massages and, and, and you know, they would, you know, sometimes give these men, you know, oral sex or masturbation, and in some cases rape, you know, that's been known to happen. And some of the people, you know, that were mentioned in the investigation, and it was, you know, I'll read this here. During their investigation, law enforcement officers found that Mr. Epstein, a former hedge fund manager who was friendly with the likes of Prince Andrew, the Duke of York, former President Bill Clinton, and Mr. Trump, paid dozens of girls cash to engage in the illicit sexual activity. The encounters took place from 1999 to 2005 in Mr. Epstein's mansions in Palm Beach, New York, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. Some of the girls were runaways or foster children without permanent homes. In some cases, Mr. Epstein would recruit other girls, well, would ask them to recruit other girls, his victims told the police. One girl told the FBI in 2007 that she began visiting Mr. Epstein when she was 15 to give him massages, first in her underwear, then in a nude, for $200 each, the court show, record show. The massage turned increasingly sexual, and Mr. Epstein also had the victim who was identified at the time only by her initials, CW, because she was a minor, bring other girls who worked with her in a local strip club. And so they had identified more than 30 victims. And apparently the Herald located about 60 and spoke to four of them on the record, including the young woman I just spoke about, CW. Her name was Courtney Wilde, and she's now 31. And so you have these older white men preying on these girls. And in some cases, enslaving them. You know, you have these sex rings that are out here, you know, and, and why are these minors working at the strip club? And this is the thing. I'm pro-sex worker. I feel that sex work should be um, legal, should be legal. And I'm not trying to take the, you know, the agency away from minors who want to work at the strip club, but I thought there were laws on the books that you had to be a certain age. And, you know, it's a lot of things that need to be looked at and reworked. And I'm just looking at all of this, you know, because they were preying on these, you know, a lot of these young girls and a lot of these women. It's not just young girls. It's women that are caught up in all of this stuff as well. You know, many of them are homeless. Many of them, you know, in so many words, are destitute. I mean, it's just a number of things. And, and the young lady was talking about he went after girls who he thought no one would listen to, and he was right. These girls knew, you know, that no one would believe them, you know, and that kind of ties into that bullshit with R. Kelly and what R. Kelly and a number of other, you know, men have been able to get away with. As a matter of fact, when they were getting ready to do the debut of that film, 
talking about R. Kelly, I believe there there were some gun threats, so they had to postpone that. And they were blaming R. Kelly for the gun threats and the reason why they had to postpone debuting that particular documentary. But a lot of this is happening out here. It's happening, and I just wanted you all to see how it ties to Donald Trump and how, you know, the attorney that gave Epstein that deal, how now he's the Secretary of Labor. So follow that trail. Research that. And how all of this ties together. And a lot of this is coming out more and more. So I just wanted to bring that up once again, because like I said, I know for a fact that Raina and I talked about it when Trump was, you know, primarying out there. And, um, you know, and what's going on? I know I would be remiss, sorry about this, I would be remiss if I didn't say anything about what's happening in North Carolina and Michigan. What's happening in North Carolina and Michigan, this is not new either. But what they're doing is they're stripping the Democratic um, governor and other Democrats that were voted into positions of power. They're stripping them of that power. You need to pay attention to that. And the election fraud, especially in North Carolina, you know, with them collecting people absentee ballots. It was an interview I watched today with this young black woman who said, that they were chasing her down and demanding that she give her give them her absentee ballot and how they never filled it out in front of her and how it was never turned in. And so this is why I point the finger at a lot of these white progressives, these white liberals, these white moderates, because when it comes down to voter suppression, you're fucking silent. You're silent about that. But if we say we don't want to vote or that they're all the same, then you get angry. But you have nothing to say about the voters. Because, see, let's, 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 not, let's not, you know, Democrats benefit from voter suppression, too. And I need you guys to understand that. So anyway, um, you know, what's happening with, you know, these Republicans and the GOP and this election fraud and the suppression and all of that, you know, the media is kind of normalizing this behavior. Now, this is not new. This has been happening for a while. But they're normalizing the behavior. And they're trying to justify this behavior. So, guys, I just need for you to pay attention to what's going on. What's going on and what's happening. And so I'm getting ready to switch up a little bit. Um, because there are a lot of things that I want to cover. So that was enough of that, you know, for right now. And those of you who know the show, you know, I'm going to end up covering it again. And I know some people are like, oh, she already talked about that two, three times. Well, there are new people listening to the show. And I would like to say hi to the new people because I'm looking at my numbers and they're outstanding. Thank you for listening. I appreciate it and I appreciate you. 
so I posted an article. You know, you can go out and find it for yourself. And this was written over in the Atlantic, right? And Jamel Hill wrote this. You know, Jamel Hill, the the black woman that was on ESPN that people got angry with because she challenged and questioned 45. So the title of her article is, Sometimes I Wish the Obamas Wouldn't Go High. And she talked about how gracious they were to the Trumps and how they had to be. And she talked about black people in this country and the standards that we are expected to uphold, right? And, yeah, we're expected to be gracious. We're expected to be diplomatic. We're expected to be, did I say gracious already? We're expected to be polite and civil. And so, you know, she was talking about how, you know, when white people belittle us or dehumanize us or attack us and, and, and they're doing it with impunity, this is something that we know and we've seen and many of us have experienced in one way or the other, and basically, it is expected that we don't cause waves, that we behave in a benevolent kind of way towards the whites. And if we don't, we know that, you know, there could be reprisal, there could be retaliation, there could be punishment. You know, and and I've been in this situation a number of times, especially with some of the companies I worked for. You know, uh, you know, I don't talk very much about some of the shit that I went through, but I've been harassed. I always had trouble with white men on these jobs, but we're not talking about me. But um, we're talking about white supremacy and the expectations of black people. You know how we're held to a higher standard, and and how in the face of that brutality and that racism and just the ugliness, how we're expected to stand strong with dignity and act as though it doesn't bother us and how we're rushed out to the microphone to say we forgive you or how can we be of service to you so that you can learn from what you did and so that, so that in so many words we can apologize for just even being present that caused you that anger and distress that made you want to reach out and violently deal with us. And when I say violently, that that can mean a number of different things, whether it's physical, emotional, psychological, you know, financial, all of that. And how we have to be the bigger person in all of this. And we have to take the high road. And it's bullshit. And I used to be one of those people, like, oh, I'm going to take the high road. No, fuck that, fuck you, fuck all that bullshit. And, you know, before I take it back, I'll add more to that shit. Fuck you. And that's how I see that shit now, especially when I'm not necessarily beholden to a lot of the systems. Now, there are certain things that I am still beholden to, and I understand that, but I'm working to get around that shit. So I can tell you how I really fucking feel about some other stuff. You know, and so in this article, Jamel was saying she wished it wasn't Michelle Obama who coined the term or the phrase, when they go low, we go high. You know, and, and she was talking about 
how, you know, the people who cite that particular phrase, how she wonders if they understand the impact that has on black and brown people or people of color. You know, how we have to rise above all of that shit all the time when you have racism directed at you, when you have violence directed at you, any type of violence directed at you, when, you know, and you have to stand there and you have to take it. Even if you're taking it with tears running down the fucking side of your face, you have to take it. And you have people, white and black, who will stand there and tell you if you fight back, if you say anything in response, they're going to blame you. They're going to gaslight you. They're going to harm you. Even though you didn't start it and you're the victim. They expect more of you than the person who perpetrated the crime or the harm or the hurt. And you see this all day in a number of situations. But right here she's talking about people of color and the racism that's directed at us in this country and how Hillary pretty much just turned her head and ignored the Trumps and had that been the Obamas, how there would have been endless loops on the news talking about how they're dividing the country even further and how they're ungracious and and. and and how, you know, they're not as classy as everybody thought they were. And, they would, you know, she says here they would have been accused of grandstanding and dividing the country even more than it already is. And that's true. They would have been called undignified. They would have been called a number of things. But most importantly, you would have had people out here saying, I told you so. I told you they weren't good people. I told you they were on some bullshit. And so in her article or her narrative that she has here, she talks about how black people, you know, things, our parents have had to have all these talks with us all our lives, how we have to be twice as good to get half as far as anybody white. And what's interesting is I posted an article on my wall talking about, again, Michelle Obama, and she talks about how she's been at these, you know, at these tables with some of the most powerful people and and how they aren't that smart. And they aren't. I've been telling you guys this forever. They are not that smart. They just have wealth, power, opportunity from a seat at the table. And, you know, we've talked about on this show how there are some white people that have admitted that they don't want to talk about white privilege or white supremacy because it takes away from... It takes away from their sense of self, their sense of having worked hard and having earned their way when that's not necessarily true. So they want to deny these things because they don't want to face the truth and they don't want to acknowledge the fact that, you know, we've been done wrong. We've been treated shitty. And, you know, and a lot of black brilliance, a lot of black brilliance um, has been stolen. You know, and and all of that ties into perpetual poverty and a number of things that are, you know, that happens to us in general. 
And so basically she goes on and she talks about the conditioning, you know, that we have to go under and, and that we have to maintain. And, you know, this article she's talking about the moral high ground and being the bigger person and, and how we've been conditioned into believing that this is the only way to defeat racism. And that's not true. It hasn't worked all these years. The fuck? What is that saying to you? You know, and and how we have to suppress, you know, our natural instincts, our natural human emotions, you know, and, and, and we have to, in a lot of cases, resist and suppress communicating, you know, the, the impact, the consequences of these things. And that is killing us. And it really is. And so she goes on and talks about some of the burdens of racism and how one-sided it is. And I'll read directly here. It says, that's one of the many burdens of racism for people of color. It is ridiculously one-sided. Only one side is expected to show compassion. Only one side must practice restraint. Only one side is pressured into forgiveness. It's bad enough having to stomach being wronged. Is downright shameful being stuck with the responsibility of also making it right. And we see this played out time and time again, over and over. And I'm going to give a couple of other examples, you know, but I really want you guys to go and read that article. Um, it was actually pretty good. You know, I think this is the first time that I... Um, read anything from her besides her tweets. And, you know, she's written a couple of other things, but when I say the first time I've read anything of hers um, in regards to racism and, you know, full article. And so that may be on my end because, you know, I have not been spending as much time on social media as I used to. But um, I'm looking forward to more from Jamel Hill especially since now she's not bound by ESPN and, you know, just some of the bullshit that goes along with working, you know, in corporate America. And unfortunately, being black and working in corporate America, um, it's just, it's bullshit. It really is. And some of the stuff you have to put up with and you have to deal with, um, you know, and we're expected to take the high road. And, again, for many years, a lot of white people didn't believe black folks when we tell them that these things were happening. And a lot of you still don't believe us now. And it's interesting because some of you want to say you're good allies and all of these things. You still haven't figured out that you don't get to decide to call yourself an ally. You don't get to make that call. You don't get to bestow that title upon yourself. You know, um, I remember a few years ago I was posting an article talking about how we needed to pass an anti-lynching law. It talked about Ida B. Wells and everything, all the work that she did. And we had some ridiculous white jackass 
tried to call me a race baiter and was asking why I was posting articles like that because I was, you know, agitating an already oppressed group. And so it's like they don't want you putting out any information that will make you wake up and think. So I posted an article this week, and it says Congress has tried more than 200 times to pass an anti-lynching law. This year it could fail again. And this was written by Jaweed Kaleem, and this is in the L.A. Times. And I'll read the title again. Congress has tried more than 200 times to pass an anti-lynching law. This year it could fail again. And the author is Jaweed Kaleem, and it was written December 5th, 2018. And so it talks about, you know, these bills that have been sent to Congress um, specifically to target lynchings and how it's just, it's, it's feel, I mean, it's failed. Um, the first time was in 1900 by Representative George H. White a North Carolina Republican and the only black person in Congress. And it was defeated in committee. And so I want you guys to go, and I want you to read this article, and I want you to appreciate, you know, the work of Ida B. Wells and others during that era. And what's unfortunate is there was a young black woman, you know, Jasmine Abdullah, from California who was convicted of lynching. And, you know, I've met Jasmine, and I think Jasmine changed their name. I don't know. It was a lot going on there. And, you know, I was able to give a few words of encouragement to her. And I still, you know, I, I'm wishing that young woman the absolute best because, I mean, amazing. It's fucking amazing. You know, you convict a black person of lynching. But you can't get Congress to pass a lynching bill. You know, if you go back in, in this article, it talks about Tuskegee University researchers documented 4,475 lynchings that took place in the U.S. between 1882 and 1968. Please understand they are still lynching people in this country. And, you know, I also want you to understand it wasn't just the black people that were lynched. I know I've posted articles talking about, you know, some Filipinos that were lynched, some Italians that were lynched, you know, Mexicans, Native Americans, you know, that have been lynched. And so it's just, it's important that you guys understand this history and understand why this is so important and then understand why we're angry and why we're questioning all of your shit, and why in some cases we're just totally, you know, disillusioned with the entire system. And we're like, why the hell are we even trying? Why are we doing A, B, and C? And it's not that we're going to stop doing A, B, and C, but I think we need to shift the focus, and we need to make people more accountable 
just continuing to reelect somebody from a particular party is not going to fix this situation, especially when you have these liberal whites, these progressives, these moderate whites that are part of this so-called Democratic Party that are complicit with the racism. And in some cases, just as racist as these, these Democrats, I mean, these, some of these Republicans, except they're polite and civil about it. You notice they didn't really get too upset with Jeff Sessions. Why? Because he was always polite and civil. Go back and you read some of those articles and how they described him, some of the Republicans and some of the Democrats. You will see polite and civil. It's okay to be a racist asshole as long as you're nice about it, right? Some of you should have experienced that in your jobs, being harassed, and then they report you to HR because you won't accept it. And then they run you out. Why? Because you're a lost cause because you just won't let it go. And then they give little Tim Tim a promotion and a raise. Happens a lot, especially to black women. And so go and you read this article, and it's going to tell you how all of this takes place with the bipartisan groups of lawmakers, how they introduce bills, how it goes to the committee, and how it becomes proposed laws, and, and how, and it talks in this article about how most of them are pretty much symbolic. And, you know, they're trying to say modern-day lynchings are rare. I had some white people try to argue this with me not too long ago, a few months ago. And I'm like, no, they're still lynching people. I'm like, what do you think those police officers are doing to those black and brown people, those videos? I'm like, those are modern-day lynchings. And they, you know, they had to kind of give in to that, but they weren't happy. And that's why I'm laughing because, you know, some of these are some of the same groups. So why can't we keep black and brown people? They won't come out to our to our meetings. And uh, this is why. When we correct you, you get upset. When we won't let you sit, sit there and say, oh, well, that's not really racist. You don't get to define what's racist. That was extremely racist what they did. Well, I don't think it's that bad. You don't think that it's really that bad because you've probably done that to someone or you know someone who's done that to someone and you want to believe that they're a good person. You want to believe that you're a good white person. And so we're just misunderstanding what you meant and what you were doing. And we're having a rise in hate incidents in this country. And white supremacists are, you know, they're coming out. They're proud, you know, they're they're marching, you know, and, and and they're descending upon us through the mainstream media to find accept acceptance and normalization. But you can't pass an anti lynching law. So I guess Kamala Harris Cory Booker and Tim Scott are trying to bring this bill forward. And, um, you know, Bobby Rush, you know, introduced it to the House or the House bill. You know, um, 
You know, this speaks volumes. It speaks volumes. And these are some of the same people that tell us to get over it or that was in the past. And if you have someone saying that to you and telling you those things, that's not a so-called ally. That's someone that's trying to gloss over the truth and don't want to be held responsible. And so what's interesting, I did say reparations on my on the wall, on the, um, the bullet point. You know, there was a, a white gentleman that was talking about reparations. He made the status update. And the responses were typical. The first response was from a white woman who just totally derailed and deflected the conversation and was like, well, reparations should be given to women, of course, of all colors, for all the cooking and cleaning and everything that they did. Because white women and their frailties and their fragilities take precedence over everything and everyone else. Which is why when I look at these white feminists, why I laugh my ass off, especially the ones that call what uh, angry sock puppet. You bitches. Fuck you motherfuckers. Um, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's all about what they want. And, you know, what's interesting is, you know, we've talked about how they side with white supremacy and, and white men because, again, proximity, but they also know that their whiteness will open doors and give them opportunities that their womanhood will not. And that's true. And so what I find interesting about that, and, you know, which is why, you know, I brought up the angry sock puppet thing, because I thought that shit was hilarious. You know, it's so funny because I mentioned it on, on um, a few places, and it was a white guy that came on, and he says, well, that's what they are. Exactly. And I've seen some of this, you know, and, and, and I'm just saying, you know, a lot of different communities. Look at what's happening with Lena Dunham. Look at what's happening with Alyssa Milano. Right, and so um, it's it's just I'm gonna get to that, you know, and and I'm gonna segue by this. There was an article that I posted from Race Bader, and it was written December fifth, twenty eighteen. The title is "Why I'm Unchoosing the Academy Because I No Longer Want to Play Monkey for White Validation," and it was written by Amber Butts. Right. Title again is I'm Unchoosing the Academy Because I No Longer Want to Play Monkey for White Validation. And it was written by Amber Butts, December 5th, 2018. And so when I posted this, you know, of course I posted um, a quote from the article. But before the quote, I talked about how this could be applied across many different institutions and, and communities and organizations across the board. And so with this here, you know, she talks about how when you go to the academy and they have you basically jumping through these hoops and how, you know, whenever someone says diversity or inclusion, if you're the only black person in the room, everybody stares at you. And in a lot of cases, in my experience and as well as many others, you're the only person in that classroom 
or the other, only person in that particular division or that group or whatever, whatever it happens to be. So when they're talking about something that's racist, you know, sometimes the instructor or, or the HR person or whomever, they can't help but put their eyes on you and focus on you directly when they're talking about certain things that are harmful, that are hurtful. And then if you go to them and tell them how it harmed you, but you're the troublemaker now. Because now you made them feel uncomfortable. Right? And in this situation here, um, you know, she was talking about how, you know, she would always be expected to speak on panels about blackness, diversity, and art, and how these panels centered on trauma, pain, and resilience, and how she was never on a panel with non-black folks. And, you know, she's still on all their pamphlets and, all, you know, all of that shit. And basically how they're still using her. You know, and like she said, she no longer wants to play monkey for their validation. But what happens is, you know, in this article, she talks about how a lot of their so-called expertise and a lot of their scholarship comes, you know, comes from basically sitting on the backs and standing on the backs of black people and our, our disenfranchisement and our pain and our traumas. And this is how, you know, and it's just, you know, it I was sitting there, and, and it's true, and how you have certain white people that will use black folks to capitalize, use black people to excel, use the experiences of those black people, and will sit there and try to hold up and, and, and support certain black people, not because they really like them and support them, but because they believe that this black person can help them reach the next pinnacle. Even if they have to leave said black behind eventually, they're willing to take that chance. And so, you know, she was talking about her experiences. And, you know, it was just really interesting. Um, And I've seen this. I've seen this. I've seen it. And then what's interesting is some of those blacks, and she was talking about some of the blacks in the academy, how they felt like they were exceptional, maybe different, and 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 if there was another black that was around, because in many cases they want to be the only fly in that buttermilk, and if there's another black person around, and if they can find a way to put that other black person down, then that's what they're going to do until the other black person checks them. And then here we go with the gaslighting again, right? And so in, in, in basically she talks about the academy and how some of these same said blacks are expected to show up with their, what she say, call it a PowerPoint portal, right? And, um, <laughs> uh, you know, talking about, whatever it is, the topic happens to be the subject matter, but how that same black person gets up there and basically speaks in such a way that most people have no idea what they're talking about 
or speak in such a way to make people feel bad about themselves or, or feel stupid. I mean, it's just it's a really, really interesting article. And I've seen this, and I've seen it in a lot of different ways. And then you have the ones that probably get up there, again, with their PowerPoint presentations, and they try to explain it in, in you know, an everyday language. But yet the ideas that they're presenting is still subjugating and subjecting, you know, black people, especially poor black people, and their past experiences and their present experiences, um, it's, you know, um, they're, they're presenting it in such a way that they're doing even more harm. They're denigrating the same people, and they're destroying them in such a way. So it's just, I don't know, maybe this is just my perception of it, but, you know, right here, you know, she's, she's talking about, you know, the lives, deaths, and manipulations of poor black folk. And what's interesting is that you have groups of people, they don't want these poor black people subjected to this group, but they want you subjected to their group and their friends so that they can get what you once was giving this other group. They don't care about you either. So... It's just, you know, I'm I'm reading this, and like I said, I'm looking at this, you know, from a number of different places and a number of different situations, but um, especially with some of these white women out here, especially some of these white feminists and some of the shit that I've seen them do. And, you know, what's interesting is, you know, some of the ones that I always see them with them damn Black Lives Matter t-shirts, it don't fucking matter. Not to you, because once you figured out that you could not capitalize off of them and take over that movement, you moved on. But you want to have on your T-shirt so everybody know you're one of the good whites, right? So that kind of leads me into this Lena Dunham shit. Lena Dunham. Um, there's an article on whereyourvoicemag.com. And the title of the article is basically, um, um, ah, fuck Lena Dunham. Hold on a second. Yeah, fuck Lena Dunham and the white feminist horse she rode in on. And this is written by Sharonda J. Brown and Laura Witt. And it's talking about, you know, Dunham who's problematic and how she's shown us who she is and how white women have continued to support and uplift her as a feminist hero, right? And so it talks about all of this bullshit that Dunham has done, you know, accusing Aurora Perrineau as being a liar, and she lied about it. A year later, Dunham admitted that she lied, but that was after a whole bunch of shit went horribly wrong in her life, right? And so now she's apologizing, but it seems to have been a precursor to her apology. These other folks knew it was coming, so, you know, these white women were laying out, you know, the red carpet or laying out, you know, pre, pre-apologies for her and excuses for her so that when the apology came, and it was really a non-apology, that people would be more apt to accept her apology. And you have white women out here saying, well, at least she apologized. I mean, they said the same thing about 
Hillary Clinton in her remarks about, you know, black children being super predators. That apology doesn't mean anything. Yeah, you gave an apology, but you don't fucking mean it. That's just me. You know, and basically, you know, in, in whatever apology this was, it talks about how she centered herself and her feelings and, and, and basically a lie that harmed a black person, you know, who was sexually assaulted at 17, talking about she didn't have the insider information. You don't need insider information. And it all depends on who the insider is. People are going to twist shit to to their benefit. And I guess it doesn't help when you have some other folks out here who refuse to talk about it. So all the opinion you have is that one there. And you know it's some bullshit. You know it's bullshit. But you go along with it anyway. You know, but Aurora was harmed in that situation, right? And so, um, you know, this is not shocking. This is not new. This is something we've come to expect from white women, you know. And with this Lena Dunham, she got mad because Odell Beckham Jr. didn't hit on her. I guess, you know, he was supposed to hit on her. That was going to make her feel like a whole woman. I don't know. I don't know what's going on. Talks about, you know, her tokenizing black and brown folks. That happens a lot, a lot more often than people care to talk about, and a hell of a lot more than some of these black and brown people care to admit, or they don't mind being a token as long as it's paying off for them, right? Who cares if that's a good person? La, 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 la. So, again, you know, I just sit back and I laugh. You know, this last sentence here um, in this one paragraph, it says, it's more of that classic dog whistle, white woman aggression, the same kind of rationale that many abusers use to psychologically disarm their victims, and part of the dazzling array of mental gymnastics that white women so often do when their narcissistic white supremacist feminist face are rightfully criticized. This continued support of Dunham is indicative of the fundamental problem with white feminism. It has always been about shifting power to white women and no one else. It says that white women should be empowered and praised regardless of whether or not they are ethical, moral, or decent. White feminists have been vapid white supremacists, nationalists, and xenophobes. Supporters of eugenics, forced sterilization, genocide, and colonization, parishioners of doctrines that promote slavery, prison industrialism, and other exploitative capitalist interests, purveyors of misogynoir, fetishism, dehumanization, and cultural appropriation, active deployers and celebrators of white violence. These women don't deserve a platform for their ideas, but the basic tenets of white feminism tells us they do even as they have consistently provided footing for the white heteropatriarchal structure they claim to want to dismantle. And it says here, despite what many pink pussy hat wearers may tell you, white feminism is simply a hop, skip, and jump away from far-right and conservative women like Megyn Kelly, who failed at her attempt at a liberal rebrand, Ivanka Trump, Melania Trump, and Tony Loren, 
White feminists will co-sign white women on the far right and uplift them as feminists, even though they hold staunchly oppressive and white supremacist views, and sometimes because they do. But it is easy to see how the two can coexist, given the history of white feminism and its intimate relationship with white supremacy. Even Hillary Clinton, the liberal white feminist icon, has used slave labor and referred to black children as super predators. And I'll just, you know, give you one more. But white feminists consistently love things that are problematic and vaguely racist, if not blatantly. And it talks about how they adore the handmaid's tale and all of that. But, you know, it talks about the gaslighting and all of that and then how they turn around and try to say, you know, that they're a victim and it's everybody else's fault without truly examining the role that they play. So, yeah, fuck Lena Dunham, fuck Alyssa Milano, and, yes, I have a problem with Alyssa Milano, too, because she has been trying from day one to take over, you know, the Women's March as well as the Me Too thing. You know, and, I mean, even though she did acknowledge Tarana Burke, um, just some of the things that have been happening out here, and most recently with Alyssa Grandstanding, um, about not speaking at the 2019 Women's March if, you know, um, Linda Sauer and Tamika Mallory don't stand, don't step down. And I guess she wants them to denounce Louis Farrakhan. All right. So there's a lot to unpack with that there, and we only have so much time left. We only have 20 minutes left in the show. But, um, number one, Alyssa Milano doesn't have the authority or power to demand that these people step down. Let's start with that. Number two, where the fuck did Melissa Milano come from? I guess her acting career isn't going as well as it used to, so I guess she has to do something, right? And so, you know, what's interesting with this here is that um, you have four people, Bob Bland, Tamika Mallory, Linda Sauer, and Carmen Perez, those have been the four people that have been kind of the figureheads of the Women's March. And, you know, they're not your typical everyday folks. You know, I'm trying to be really careful with this here. And so you have folks out here shaking their finger at them stating that they're allowing anti-Semitism, anti-LGBTQIA sentiment, and hateful racist rhetoric to become part of the platform. And that's not necessarily true. You know, they have these attacks coming from all over the place, but with Linda Sassauer and Tamika Mallory specifically, you know, um, and even Carmen Perez, you know, have had some type of interaction or dealings with Louis Farrakhan or, you know, the Nation of Islam or what have you. And, you know, they're being pilloried and people are attacking them and trying to get them to denounce Farrakhan, right? And it's even to the point that they have Teresa Shook, um, the woman who was the first one out there saying that maybe they should have a women's march after 45 was elected. And so... um, you know, they responded to Teresa Shook. 
And, you know, uh, it talked about how she weighed in, and they felt that, you know, what she said was irresponsible. And and basically how other organizations and other people want to take advantage of the situation and try to fracture the network by taking credit for the hard work and labor that they put in. Now, you see that all the time. And, you know, I've been in that situation a few times where I did all of the hard work. I put in a lot of time, a lot of effort, and then you'll have certain people who want to take it over, especially since the hard part is done and now they feel that they can handle it and do it on their own. And when you refuse to give it to them and you refuse to give in, and God help you if you fight back, now you're problematic. But people don't know the whole story. And you're not necessarily telling it. Why? Because it's none of your motherfucking business. It has nothing to do with you. But in this situation here, you have people that see this, this very healthy, this growing movement, and now they want to take it over or put other people that may have uphold certain values they have that may look like you a lot more, you know, and again, I'm looking at this, you know, through a filter of white supremacy, you know, and, you know, Alyssa Milano trying to throw her weight around. Don't nobody give a fuck if you speak or not. Fuck you and goodbye, you know, but just watching how all of this, you know, is is coming to pass, and I'm glad that they're not stepping down. I'm glad that they're holding strong and they're not handing this shit over. Fuck you, motherfuckers. You know, and and it's interesting, but right here they even acknowledge, they say, we are imperfect. We do not know everything, and we have caused harm. The four wrote, at times we have responded with hurt, but we are committed to learning. Our ongoing work speaks for itself. That's our focus, not armchair critiques from those who want to take credit for our labor. You know, and so you're going to continue to see these types of things, and there's specifically pointing the finger at Linda and Tamika in regards to um, demanding that they denounce Louis Farrakhan. And so what's so interesting about this, and I'm going to tie it into the Mark Lamont Hill situation. Now, I'll let me just be upfront and honest with you. With the Women's March, I did not support that. I supported the black and brown organizers that helped to put this together which is the only reason why I'm addressing this, you know, especially with Tamika, you know, and um, and Linda and Carmen and, and what's happening here. Now, with Mark Lamont Hill, I support him, you know, saying that what's happening over there in Israel, you know, is apartheid and genocidal. That is true. And the Palestinians deserve the right to live on their own land. They deserve the right to return as well as their descendants. They deserve the right to live. They deserve the right to have their own state, period. Mark Lamont Hill was correct. And Mark Lamont Hill, in turn, he apologized, and he denounced Louis Farrakhan, and it still wasn't enough. 
And now, not only did they get him fired from CNN, they're trying to get him fired from Temple University. And the thing is, is that that's not going to be the end of it. If he moves on to another university, all they're going to do is follow him over there and try to get him fired from there. That is how this works. And they will follow you wherever you go. What he said was not anti-Semitic at all. And so, you know, he's out here. He's being demonized. He's being vilified in every way whatsoever. But the main, you know, the main point or the main example I want you to take from all of this is that what they're doing to Mark Lamont Hill is a warning to anybody, you know, but especially if you're a person of color, black and brown specifically. If you take the side of anyone outside of Israel, they are going to try to destroy you. If you try to rationalize and and, and, and you try to be, you know, again, rational about what's happening over there, if you are not saying that Israel should take over, you know, all of the land and basically control the waters, the port in and force out, all of that, and and put the Palestinians in, in a very specific area in which they're pretty much surrounded and controlled. If you're not agreeing to that, then you're wrong, as far as many of them are concerned. So I want you to look at this a little differently. I always talk about the inner cities and how you have your, you know, your area, your urban areas where the black people live, urban areas or barrios where the brown people live and how they're surrounded by these suburban enclaves, surrounded by white folks. And the same thing with these, you know, the Indian reservations. All they're doing is, again, we're in a reservation. We're being controlled. You're circled. And there's no escape. You know, one of the first things they taught us in the military is if you control a person's oil and you control a person's water, you control that society. And that's true. And so Mark Lamont Hill, he is being set up as an example to other people that if you criticize Israel and you do not bow down to whatever it is they want you to accept, even the racism and the, the you know the criminal enterprise called Netanyahu, you are wrong. And it's unfortunate because he's going to pay a price for this. But this is also deter to deter anyone else from speaking out against the genocide and apartheid that's taking place over there. So, I mean, it's important that you guys understand what's happening, why he's being vilified, and and why it's important that we come to his defense. It's important. Because otherwise, you know, you'll have all this other bullshit going on. You got Chuck Schumer and a few other legislator, legislators trying to pass a law against speaking against Israel and some of the poor decisions that are being made over there. 
So they're trying to turn it into a hate crime, basically. And people are being charged or accused of being anti-Semitic because they are, you know, speaking up for the Palestinians. And this is one of the things that I stressed when, you know, Black Lives Matter first exploded onto the scene. And I was posting a video. There were some videos from Palestinians. They were sending messages of love and some videos with the Palestinian women crying, saying that they thought that we had forgotten about them. You know what a lot of black Americans don't seem to understand is that there are a lot of people that look up to us. When we move, they fucking move. Sometimes it takes a little bit longer, but, you know, they get there eventually. And that's one of the issues that happened with some of the Black Lives Matter protesters is that the, you know, Jewish community, particularly the Israelis, turned their backs on them because of their support of the Palestinians. So I need you guys to, you know, learn about what's happening with this BDS campaign, which is Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions campaign. Um, You know, in some respects... you know, people are saying that that's problematic and how Israel is small and how that could destroy them. And so, you know, there are a lot of different opinions on that. I want you to read up and to get a better understanding of what that BDS campaign is and what they stand for. And also, um, you know, we can't be bullied, cannot allow them to, you know, any of these people to bully you into silence. You can't do it. And so it's just really interesting just looking at all of this, but he should be reinstated, you know, not only to CNN, but I hope Temple does not relieve him. And if they do, then I think we need to protest, you know, Temple University. You know, and and what's happening is they're talking about the reason why they're upset. Well, no, not the only reason, but one phrase that he used, and the phrase was from the river to the sea. And that particular um, phrase has been used by the Palestinian National Movement for decades. And But you have these Israelis and some of these Jewish people that are trying to claim that this means eradication. And there's a lot of dispute behind that. And so, you know, it's just the whole situation is unfortunate. But, you know, support Mark Lamont Hill in whatever way that you can. And keep up with this story, what's happening here, and and what's happening behind it, because um, there's a reason for this. And I think one of the biggest reasons is that there are more and more black and brown people that are saying that the Palestinians should have their statehood. And that's the wrong answer, according to some people. You know, especially when we start talking about imperialism, if we're anti-imperialism, and especially with what's happening with, you know, Benjamin Netanyahu 
and the crimes that he's been accused of, and and it's just it's horrible. So anyway, I said all of that to say this. You know, Mark Lamont Hill denounced Louis Farrakhan like they were demanding, but yet that didn't relieve anything. It didn't help anything. It didn't help him. Just like I don't think it would help, you know, um, any of these other folks with the Women's March. Linda, you know, it's not going to help. Linda is sure as hell not not going to um, help Tamika. It will never be enough. And so then they will have stepped down from their positions and denounced someone and, 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 and given these people what they want which is basically they want to take over. And so you got to understand what's really happening here and why it's bullshit and why I'm glad that they didn't step down. And that's that. So anyway, we are down to the last few minutes of the show. I think I went on and on and on and talked about a lot of things, but, you know, black public figures, you know, black public intellectuals are held to a much, much different standard and, you know, expectations of them by white people, the demands of them by white people. Um, it's a double standard and it's horrible. And it was interesting is that you have some black and brown people that will side with these white folks. You need to ask why. And in some cases, because they want that white money. They want that white validation, which they'll never really fully get. And I guess they got to learn that the hard way. So, said all that to say this, you know, I'm looking to do some more shows really soon. Uh, There's been a lot happening. You know, the family pastor died. You know, send out my condolences, you know, to his family. And they had the funeral over two days, which which was this past Friday and Saturday. And my mom didn't go to the funeral. Um, You know, I think a lot of that is, you know, she's tired, but also fear because that pastor, you know, has the same type or had the same type of cancer that she does. And um, he went into remission and, you know, he recently, you know, passed away this week. I'm just grateful he was able to eulogize my grandmother a couple of years when she passed. She was a member of that church. She was a mother there. And like I said, you know, I've known that pastor since I was 12, 13 years of age. So we were here from the minute he came down here till now. And so I just hope that, you know, that church family, you know, supports and loves and circles around his wife and his family at this time you know, while they're in need. And this particular pastor was a part of the community. He was helping people in the community. He did help to facilitate change. He was for social justice. He was just for justice across the board. You know, I happened to get to know him as an individual, and I I liked him as a person. And uh, I just wanted to say that and send my condolences to his family, the church, the community and everybody who was impacted by his life and his legacy. And so that 
you know, I salute a good man that we lost. So, um, hey, you guys, you enjoyed the rest of your Sunday, and I look forward to talking with you all again on the next show. And again, this is Kim of Black Free Thinkers. We're here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. And I'll say that again. We are here to challenge you to live and think for yourself, not convert you. Good night.